Let's pray together. Gracious Father, how we thank you and praise you because you are a good and a gracious God. You give us all good gifts. And these books that we call the Bible, they are unlike any other book, Lord. This is your word. It is powerful. It is, it is like a two-edged sword. It pierces the very marrow of our bones. It changes us and transforms us. We thank you for the plentiful nature of Bibles and our ability to, to buy a Bible and not even in some cases have to work an hour to be able to pay for a basic Bible here in the United States. Thank you for that privilege. Lord, we pray that as a church with a global vision, you would bless us with a generosity, even this week, such that we would be able to see all those funds raised so that we can give out Bible after Bible through our brother Jim in Malawi when he visits there. Thank you for his ministry there. Thank you for the good work of the Robertson Foundation there. As people are being taught, Christians, the church is being taught uh, the best practices of agriculture so that they are able to uh, feed themselves and, and indeed produce produce greater crops to feed others. Thank you, Father, for the teachings taking place on the discipling of pastors so that they in turn can disciple their congregations. Thank you for the way in which Bibles are being distributed and the churches, the churches are growing more deeply in their relationship with you. Thank you that we can partner with the nation of Malawi through Jim Robertson to make a difference for Jesus Christ. We pray for him, pray for his journey there. Ask, Father, that you would watch over, protect him, and Sylvia, as he's gone, we pray a hedge of protection around them. And Lord, we pray that you would anoint Jim and use him mightily as he teaches and ministers there. We thank you too for the privilege that we have to minister here. And thank you for the privilege of preaching and teaching your word and these attributes of who you are. So Father, we pray that today you would pour out your spirit on Pastor Paul and that you would use him to powerfully preach the word of God regarding your wisdom. Help us by opening our eyes, opening our ears, opening our hearts to this truth. Would you teach and instruct us? Would you correct and rebuke any kind of misunderstanding we've had? And in the end, Father, I pray that if there be any here who do not know you, that they would come to embrace you as Savior and Lord of their lives, and that we as believers would not be so foolish as to deny the cross, but we would be willing to be counted fools for Christ as we lift up our faith and belief that it is by your death, Jesus, and by your resurrection that salvation is available to all. We would be remiss if we only prayed for ourselves today. So we pray for the churches around us. There are so many gospel-centered churches around us. But literally, immediately, within less than a mile, we pray for Pastor Adam over at Grace Church of Willow Valley and Pastor Joe up at Willow Street Mennonite Churches um, Church and representatives of so many other pastors and churches around us. We pray for the anointing of your spirit upon these men as they proclaim your word and upon these congregations as they grow deep in Christ as well, and so many others here in Willow Street and in the communities around us. We thank you that we are partners together in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we thank you for worship, for the ability to come and sing, to pray, to seek your face, and to be reminded of who you are, the one and only Savior of the world. And it's in your strong name, Jesus, that we pray. And all the people said, Amen. Would you turn in your Bibles or your devices today to 1 Corinthians chapter 1? 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We'll begin reading at verse 18. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church at Corinth, writes these words. 
For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of this world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let's say it together, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Well, thank you very much, Pastor Mike. You got me salivating over those Chick-fil-A things. So <laughs> last night he said to me, hey, I'll pick you up for church tomorrow. We'll stop by and get Chick-fil-A. And then he goes, April Fool's. And I was like, that's just wrong. Like, it's, just, it's just wrong. So many levels. It's just, it, see, it's fun. He says it's fun to tease me like that. Well, hey, if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to stay open to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We are going to jump in that a little bit. I just have an announcement that I've been asked to make, and I want to give it to you that are at 915. We have recognized over the last several weeks that we have a major issue here at the church, and it's not Chick-fil-A nuggets. It is parking. Um, so if you see a parking lot guy today, there's a couple things I'd like you to do. One, be nice to them. Two, give him a hug. Uh, or just tell them, I'm giving you a hug in my mind, but we got to keep going, you know. Just be nice. But the other thing is, we've realized that we're, we don't have enough parking spaces. And we've begun to have to park cars all along curbs and things like that. And we realize that that's probably not the best thing for us. And so what we've been doing for the past few weeks is we've been encouraging all of our young adults to park off at the medical site. And what we want to say to you this morning is if you are able-bodied and you're willing to park off-site over at the Willow Valley Medical Campus, we will have a bus over there for you, and we will drive you over here to the church. So if you could make that sacrifice, particularly next weekend and the weekends to follow, we know that there's going to be loads of people here, and it would be imperative that someone who hasn't heard about Jesus Christ would get a better parking spot than you, right? Yeah. And so it's easy. You just park over there. And then we'll pick you up, or if you want, you can walk, and then that way you get Jesus and exercise. It's good all around, right? Amen. Well, thank you guys so much for being understanding. I know that we appreciate that. If you're wondering if we as pastors park close, we do. We park right around the building. We expect you guys to walk. No, I'm kidding. We park off-site too. Um, we've been doing that ever since I've been here. Pastors have been parking off-site. And so I just ask that you would, you would join us in that to help to make space for someone else. For someone else who needs to hear the gospel. Amen. Thank you all. 
Well, we're in this series now on God, and it has been a wonderful series. If you have been missing this, I encourage you to go to our website or our YouTube channel where you can find all of the sermons and many other sermons about what we've been preaching about. These attributes are important. When we talk about God, you need to know who in the world you're talking about. And God has many attributes, jealousy, mercy, grace, love, some of them incommunicable, some of them communicable. And the reality is, is we get to, we get to experience God through his word, and we're studying about him so why we can know him and we can trust to follow him when he calls us to follow him. And this morning, we're gonna be looking at the wisdom of God. You know, it's interesting when you talk about wisdom. William Shakespeare, I think, wisely said this. A fool thinks himself wise, but a wise man knows himself to be a fool. Are you wise or are you a fool? The great philosopher Socrates argued that the only true wisdom is in knowing that you know nothing, which is honestly how I feel sometimes as a parent of three daughters, that I know nothing. And all the dads said, amen. <laughs> it has, though, recently been pointed out that the saddest aspect of life right now is that science gathers knowledge faster than society seems to be gathering wisdom. That's sad. We have all this knowledge, and yet our brains are too top-heavy, and we tumble over ourselves and around one another. Yet standing in the presence of some of the greatest minds and some of the greatest thinkers and some of the greatest influencers and teachers that history has ever known is this tiny little man, the Apostle Paul. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he asks this question, boldly asks, where is the wise person? Where is the great teacher of the law? Where is the great philosopher of this age? Paul goes on to say, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? See, the question is not, are you wise or, or am I wise? The question is, when you and I stand in front of Jesus Christ one day, when this life is over and the breath is no longer in our lungs, you better be standing there as a fool, not as a wise person. It's interesting that throughout Scripture, God is described as a wise God. Matter of fact, Paul even says in Romans chapter 16 that he is the only wise God, meaning there is no one else, no other God in heaven or earth that compares to the wisdom of our God. Job says that God is wise in heart and that to him belongs all wisdom and power and counsel and knowledge or understanding. Scholar Wayne Grudem says that God is wise because God always chooses the best goals and the best means to those goals. That's the wisdom of God. He chooses the best goals and the best means to those goals. And so by definition, the wisdom of God, we can see that his decisions will always bring about the best results from God's ultimate perspective. Not from your perspective. Not from my perspective. God, something, things don't happen and God goes, well, what do you think, Paul? He doesn't care. It's his wisdom laying out his knowledge of what he knows is gonna happen and he determines what is best according to his perspective. Look at scripture. God is wise and he is seen as wise from his character. Romans chapter 11 says, oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. His, how unsearchable his judgments, meaning what God knows 
and what God understands helps determine what God does. And you and I won't understand it. God will do things and you and I will go, what? But it will ultimately be, from his perspective, the best decision. God is wise through his creation. Despite all the sin and the evil that we see in this world that is honestly trying to rip the world apart, creation still hangs and holds together. How many are your works, Lord, Psalm 104. In wisdom, you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. God is wise not just because of his character or creation, but consider the church. This church, this band of believing brothers and sisters, sinners we are. And yet saints in Jesus Christ, Ephesians chapter three says, his intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and the authorities. I mean, what other than the wisdom of God could bring all of us together? What other than the wisdom of God could open your eyes to see who Jesus Christ is? You see, friends, God's character, God's creation, God's church all display God's wisdom. Yet the greatest demonstration of God's wisdom, wisdom is his redemption of mankind. The very fact that God would want to save you and save me. That is what makes God wise. That is why God's plans are the best and his results are always the best. I want you to think about this for a second. Just think about this. Before any of this was created, the heavens and the earth, think about this. No one saw the cross when God created the heavens and the earth. When Jesus finally showed up, walked, taught, and dwelt among us, and then hung on the cross, no one saw an empty grave. No one believed it. And when finally their eyes saw an empty grave, no one saw the resurrected Messiah. And when they finally saw the resurrected Messiah, no one believed that the Holy Spirit was going to come. And then they finally experienced the Holy Spirit. No one saw the church. And yet then there was the church, 3,000 on the very first day. And yet God sees it all. God saw the cross before there was a creation. God saw a resurrected Jesus. God saw the power of the Holy Spirit coming upon men and women and 3,000 being added that day. And you know what God's wisdom sees? He sees you today. That's the wisdom of God. That God would not think about where you are gonna spend today, but he would be thinking about where you and I are gonna spend eternity. That's the wisdom of God. That he would have thought of you and me before all of creation. See, the wisdom of God is the crucifixion of Jesus Christ on the cross. Paul says, as for you and me, we were dead in our trespasses and our sins in which we used to live when we followed the ways of this world. And yet, right at the right time, Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, you see, at just the right time, when you were still powerless, what happened? Christ died for you. That's the wisdom of God. That at just the right time, Jesus Christ would have died for you. No man could have thought of it. No woman could have ever explained it. And yet the reality is, is that whether or not men and women can know it or explain it, it has happened. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to the cross to die for you and me. That is the wisdom of God. And yet that is Paul's point in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. What Pastor Mike just read in verses 18 to 31, Paul is trying to prove that the wisdom of God is found in God's plan of redemption for us. And yet there's many who don't believe that. Even in this room or online, there are many who still do not believe that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. Paul writes that for some, it's foolishness. 
Look what he says in verse 18 of chapter 1 when he writes, For the message of the cross is what? Is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. In Corinth, there were many social standards, many social distinctions. Like today, we have Democrats and we have Republicans, or we have upper, middle, and lower income families. In Corinth, there were many social distinctions. There were Roman citizens and there were non-Roman citizens. There were male and female. There were slave and there were free slave. They had all these social categories. And yet, when Paul writes 1 Corinthians and he talks to this church about the cross of Jesus Christ and the wisdom of God, he doesn't make social distinctions like you and I would think of. He says there's only two categories. There are those who are perishing and those who are what? Being saved. Look at verse 18. Paul says there are those who are perishing and those who are being saved. And Paul considered himself among those who are what? Being saved. Meaning that yes, Christ died for me. Christ is my savior today. But in the future, Christ is going to what? Come and save me. And for those who believe that Jesus Christ is a great savior, they see the cross as the power of God. But for those who are perishing, they see the cross as the foolishness of God. They can't wrap their minds around it. And it doesn't make them bad people. It doesn't make them stupid or anything like that. Shouldn't put them down. I understand the cross is difficult to see. It's difficult to see Jesus on a cross and think, well, that's my savior. Particularly in a Greek mindset. When I read commentaries, it helps me to understand what the mindset was in the first century. The Anchor Bible Commentary says this, that the Greeks had intricate philosophical arguments which showed that a god must not in any way be distressed or influenced by anything outside himself. He could not be defeated by weak human beings or suffer like men. Therefore, Christ dying like a criminal, like a common criminal, was unthinkable to them. Yet, those who are persuaded that Jesus Christ is a savior, to them the cross is the power of God. To them they believe that God came in the, in the form of a baby, took on flesh, dwelt among us, hung on that cross, died, and resurrected again on the third day, what? To offer every one of us eternal life. To them, they see this and they realize that I heard about Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came inside of me. He dwells within me. He has transformed me to use me to transform this this untainable wasteland called earth. And what has happened, what has happened is that God is not doing that just with one person. He's doing that with thousands and millions of people. And what are they coming to realize? That Jesus Christ is a great savior and we are our great sinners. For whatever reason, they see Christ on the cross and they say that's the power of God and their eyes are open to their own sin and their own need for that savior. You see, friends, sometimes this is difficult for people to understand. They see the cross and it's confusing. They see the cross and they don't understand it. And they see the cross and you can explain to them about the gospel and Jesus time and time and time and time again and their eyes will still grow dull and they'll say that is pointless, that is foolishness, I don't realize why you need it. And it's in that sense that Paul would write and he would say to the church in Corinth, you see the difference. To those who are perishing, the cross is foolishness. And those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Friends, I can relate to that. I can relate to that. When I was 15 years old, I got invited to church. You know, a great way to help someone come to know and follow Jesus Christ is to do what? Invite them to church. 
If you park off site next weekend, there'll be a seat here for you to invite somebody to church. I just thought of that. It's not even in the sermon. But anyway, when I was 15 years old, I got invited to church. It was a Friday night. A young lady named Jenna Townsend invited me and my brothers to church, and so we went to New London Presbyterian Church. It's in New London. That's why it's called New London Presbyterian Church. And we went there, and I remember I sat in the back left, and I sat there, and I watched people worship. I watched people pray. I watched people do this thing. I don't understand, you know, raising their hands. Wow, I mean, it's a little wild. And then there was a guy who preached, and he had long hair and rode a motorcycle. And then there was a, a, a cross up front. And I remember sitting there as a 15-year-old, and I thought to myself, I'm in a cult. <laughs> and these people are crazy. Why? Because at 15 years old, I saw what they were doing and I heard them talk about Jesus and I thought, this is crazy. No one raises from the dead. I've seen people die. What are you all believing? I mean, you're telling me that the guy on the cross died, they buried him and he came back to life and I saw all these people and I thought, this, like they're gonna pull out the juice next, you know? And yet at that moment, my eyes were what? We would say our eyes were blinded to see the truth of the cross, to see the love of God and the grace of God and the mercy of God, to not understand the wisdom of God. That from creation, before creation even started, that God would have been thinking, my 15-year-old self is gonna be sitting here one day, listening to the gospel, and God saying, Paul, I wanna save you. And he's done that for many of you. See, that's the wisdom of God. And yet to those who are wise according to human standards, Paul says in verse 20, look, the wise person, the teacher of the law, the philosopher, they're blind to see the wisdom of God. They, don't, they can't understand it. They can tell you all about time and history and all those kinds of things, but when you talk about Jesus, it's like, what? You see, it has been wisely said that the world has had enough teachers Friends, it needs a redeemer. It needs a redeemer. See, humans tend to think the wisest people among us are those who what? Build great buildings, build great business plans, strategically what? Move nations from conflict to peace or develop life-saving medicines. We look at those people and we say, wow, those are the brightest and the best among us. And friends, I'm not up here to discount any of that. That's all helpful. That's all useful. We need people like that. But the reality is, is that buildings will crumble. Businesses will go bankrupt. Wars will happen overnight, and people will continue to get sick. And God, in his great and infinite wisdom, did not come to build a building. He came to gather people, call the church, that the gates of hell could not prevail. He came to see you, not and save you from your sickness, but to save you from your sin. The reality, the thing that separates you from a holy God, Jesus Christ said, listen, if I leave you in that state, you're not going to be separated just for a day. You're going to be separated for an eternity. And so God in his infinite wisdom didn't come to plant a building. He came to save people from their sins. That's the wisdom of God. And that's the mercy of God. It's not that God doesn't care about your sickness. It's not that God doesn't want you to have nice things. But the reality is those are byproducts. Your greatest need, my greatest need, is the sin that separates me from a holy God. And yet for some, this is a stumbling block. And Paul writes about this in verse 23, 22 and 23, when he says, for the Jews, they need signs, and for the Greeks, they see the cross as, full, they, they see the cross as foolishness. But look what he says in verse 23. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and foolishness 
to Gentiles. Why is the cross a stumbling block to Jews? The reality is, if you were Jewish in the first century, anyone hanging on a cross, you believed that anyone who hung on a cross or a tree is under God's curse. And so as a Jew in the first century, to see Jesus on that cross would have meant to you that that man must be cursed by God. And so for Christians to say, no, he's not cursed, actually, that's your savior, that would be scandalous to them. And yet for a Greek mindset, when they saw Jesus on the cross, in their minds, they didn't think that it was scandalous, they just thought, he's a criminal. I mean, Jesus was tried, right, by a Roman court under Roman law, and the punishment was death. So when they see Christ on a cross, they see a criminal getting what he deserves. I want you to think about it like this. There are some among us, even to this day, that when they look at Christ on the cross, it is still a stumbling block. It is scandalous, and he is still a criminal, and he deserved death. But for many of us, we see Christ, and we go, no, 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 that's my Savior who took my place. Do you remember Luke 23, when, when Luke describes the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, that he didn't die alone. Do you remember this? There was a man on his right and a man on his left. If you don't remember this, I'm gonna read it for you. This is what it says. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same curse. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. You see, if you are perishing, the cross is foolishness to you. But if you are being saved, you don't see a criminal on a cross. You see a Savior who took your place. And so the other criminal says to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. I know who you are, Jesus. I know what you're doing here. And I believe you're my savior. And Jesus replies, truly I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. So let me ask you this morning, what side of the cross are you on? What side of the cross are you on? Do you see Jesus as a criminal or do you see Jesus as one who took your place? Is the cross foolishness to you or is the cross the wisdom of God for you and for so many? You see, the cross is central to Christianity. It is central to what we believe. And Jesus says this, if you see the cross and you think it's foolishness, then the reality is, the truth is, you will perish. But if today you will believe that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, then you will come to realize that not that the only that Jesus Christ came to die for you, but he came to redeem you, to restore you, to reunite you to a heavenly father, to give you purpose in this life when you think there is no purpose, to give you hope when things look hopeless, to give you a perspective that says, you know what? Today is not all there is. There is a tomorrow. There is an eternity. And then on the other side of this breath and this life is a holy God waiting with open arms to receive all who will come to him. That's the reality of the cross. And for those of us who have embraced Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, Paul would say this in verses 26 to 31. You know one of the greatest problems that's plaguing the church right now? Do you wanna know what it is? It's pride. We've gotten a little cocky. We think we're something. 
And Paul reminds the church and he reminds those who are being saved. Look what he says in verse 26. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were. He says to those who are being saved, don't forget what you were before you came to Christ. He says, look, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were, made, were of noble birth. He's saying not many because apparently there were some who were of noble birth, influential, and who were considered wise. But yet the vast majority of the church isn't. And so Paul says to the majority of us, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of this world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. You see, we look at our lives and we think, oh my gosh, how great it would be to be born the son or the daughter of a president or a king. How great it would be to be born influential and have influence, to be to walk into a room and all the eyes turn to you and look for you for all the answers. How powerful would that be? And yet God says through the Apostle Paul, none of that matters. Because God wasn't looking for those people. You know who God's looking for? He's looking for the fools in verse 27. The shamed, the weak, the lowly, the despised. Who are these people? They are people who have come to realize that their true identity is not found in their own strength or their own might, but is found only in Jesus Christ. They realize that their true identity is found on the cross with Jesus Christ. They realize that their true identity is found when the world would, what the world would consider is foolishness. They realize that as disciples of Jesus Christ, they have come to lay down their life, only that Jesus Christ would pick it up again. Look what Jesus said in Luke chapter 9. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. If you think this life is worth saving, you will lose it. Your house, your money, your gold, your silver, your mind, it'll all go away. So if you want to save those things, then you're gonna lose it. But what does Christ say? Whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them. We've gotten cocky. We've gotten puffed up and proud. Oh, how we long to be respected. Oh, how we long to be in the room thinking that we could make all the right decisions, how we know all the answers and we can call the shots, how we long for people to come to us because we know all the right answers, how we wish that people would say while we're not in the room, oh, she's so brilliant and he's so smart. And yet the reality is, is Christ isn't looking for those things and we shouldn't either. Our money won't save us, our power won't save us, our beauty will flee, and our fame will fade away. And it's why Paul reminds us that God chose the foolish, the weak, the despised, the knots to represent him. The men's ministry just finished studying the life of Moses. And one of the things that we learn in the life of Moses is something that D.L. Moody said. Moody wrote this, that Moses spent 40 years thinking he was somebody, 40 years learning he was nobody, and 40 years discovering what God can do with a nobody. You know, are you a nobody for Jesus Christ? Or do you puff yourself up? God is looking for us to be 
not, not looking for us to be wise according to the world standards, but he's looking for us to be fools. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. How do we become wise? When we believe that there is a wise God who had a wise redemptive plan, and that plan is Jesus Christ on the cross, and I had nothing to do with it. That's how we become wise. Until then, we are fools. Surely, we should be thoughtful fools, though, shouldn't we? John Bloom, an author for DesiringGod.org, likes to say this, God did not design us God did design us, he says. God did design us to think for ourselves. He just didn't design us to think by ourselves. You see, the reality is all knowledge and power and insight and understanding is found in Jesus Christ. All counsel and wisdom is found in Jesus Christ. As the brother of Jesus, James, wrote in James chapter 1, verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should what? Ask God. That's where real wisdom is found. That's where real insight is found. It's found on our knees in prayer asking God. But the reality is, is many of us don't want to become fools for Jesus Christ. We like our identity in this world. And yet if you really want to become a follower of Jesus Christ, what does Jesus say? You have to become like a child. When you saw Carly up here this morning being dedicated, you saw a child. Think about this. Are children strong? No. They're weak. Are children independent? No, they're dependent on a mom and dad. And yet our culture has been sucked into this idea that we should raise strong, independent women or strong, independent men. And yet the truth of the gospel is God has called the weak and the foolish and the despised and the nots to represent him. Those who are children to stand in front of scholars and philosophers and professors and say, there is a God out there who loves you and sent his son, Jesus Christ, to the cross to die for you. That is what God is looking for. Those are the wise. Yes, we should be thoughtful fools. That's what John Piper says. We should be hopeful fools. We should be happy fools. Not self-pitying or dour or defensive or forlorn or miserable fools, but unashamed, happy fools for Jesus Christ. That's what we should be. And not feel ashamed of the gospel, not feel ashamed if we don't get invited to the party or rejected by others. We should rejoice in the insults. Because the truth of the matter is, is one day this short life will come to an end. It lasts for just a moment. It's a breath, it's a vapor off the cup of a coffee. And yet then we get to spend all eternity. And where will you spend that eternity? And so Paul calls the church in Corinth and he calls us today that, listen, remember where you were and where God called you. But also, if you are going to boast today, if you're going to brag, if you're going to mouth off, then do it for Jesus Christ. Look what he says in verses 29 to 31. So that no one may boast before him, it is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us the wisdom of God. That is our righteousness and holiness and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Say that with me. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Notice what Jesus Christ has become for you. When you were unrighteous, he became righteous and gave you his righteousness when you, were holy and separ- when you were unholy and separated from a holy God, Christ came, touched you, cleansed you, and redeemed you. 
If we're going to boast, boast in Jesus Christ. Don't boast in your reputation. Don't boast in your story. Don't boast in your legacy. Tell his reputation. Tell his story. And let your legacy be found in Jesus Christ. I'm going to tell you right now, in the United States, Christianity used to be really popular. You know that. No longer. Those days are over. And the reality is, is when you tell your neighbor or your friends that you're a Christian, for the most part, many of them think you're wasting your life and your talent and your skills and your wisdom, and they think you're wasting it all. And they see us as fools, and that should be okay with you. I want to show you a picture here in just a few minutes. In the first century, Christians were not liked. They were despised. And sometime between 85 and 200 AD, someone carved something in the Palatine Hill region of Rome on a wall, and it's been preserved for us in history, and here it is. On the right-hand side, you actually see the real carving. On the left-hand side, you see a drawing. I didn't draw that, but it looks like I did. And what the carving is, is what you see is it, it pertains to, they think, they think this is one of the oldest depictions we have of Jesus being crucified. And what you see is you see a man there with his hand raised, and we believe this man is probably a Roman soldier who is worshiping Jesus on a cross, and yet the, one of the earliest pictures we have of Jesus on the cross isn't so flattering because they've taken his head off and put the head of a donkey on there. And then there's an inscription that they found right next to it. You can see it right there. And the inscription says that this is Alex Monius, and it says, Alex Monius worships his God. You see, the reality is, is early on when the church first started, Christians were considered fools. And today, for the most part, you might be considered a fool. The truth of the matter is, is would you be comfortable if that was a picture of you? If they said, Ben worships his God and drew that picture, would you be okay with that? Would you be okay with it if it said that, look, Mike worships his God or Sally worships her God? Would you be comfortable if that was your picture up there? Because for the reality is, is that's how the world mostly sees Christians. And is it okay with you? Because when you boast about Jesus Christ, realize that there is nothing flattering going on. The Apostle Paul said in Galatians chapter 6, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Are you crucified to Christ today? Are you crucified to Christ Do you trust that the wisdom of God is going to be foolish to many, but the wisdom of God is the cross? I believe that William Shakespeare got it right when he said, a fool thinks himself wise, but a wise man knows himself to be a fool. This morning, as we continue our worship, ask yourself that question, am I a fool for Jesus? Or do I want to be wise in the eyes of men. Let's worship. Father, we thank you this morning that as we come into a time of reflection and song, that we have the opportunity, Lord, to turn our attention to you, to humble our hearts, 
to maybe kneel before you and realize that there is nothing in us that is worth saving. And yet, Lord, you chose to save us, to redeem us, to love us. And so if we are going to boast, we should boast only in the cross of Jesus Christ. And I do pray this morning, if there are those that are with us this morning or those that are watching online that have never trusted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior and they see the cross as something that is foolish and silly and that disillusioned people believe in, I pray, Lord, that the scales would fall off their eyes and that they would come to realize that there is a great Savior and he doesn't want anything from them, he just wants them. And that he loves them and that he died for them. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that today and this week we get the opportunity to not only celebrate your resurrection, but to look for you for strength and wisdom and counsel. In the strong name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Would you stand with us, please?